This morning I want to kind of begin with a trivia question for you. Um, So think about this with me. What are the movies, It's a Wonderful Life, Back to the Future, and Jurassic Park all have in common? Okay, you're probably waiting for a punchline, aren't you? But actually, if you think about it, they are all based on the same premise, that seemingly small changes can end up having a really big, making a really big difference in, in someone's life, if you think about each one of those. You'll remember in It's a Wonderful Life, uh, Jimmy Stewart's character, George Bailey, finds himself so distraught that he was planning to end his life, you remember? Until he was interrupted by an angel who then took him back in time to see how his absence would have detrimentally affected all those in his hometown that he, that he loved. George had determined that his life was meaningless. <laughs> but the angel revealed to him how even his smallest act of kindness had a tremendous impact in someone's life. His life really did matter. It was a wonderful life. You then remember in the movie Back to the Future, Michael J. Fox, his character Marty McFly. Now he goes back in time and he ends up changing just a small little nuance of an encounter between what would be his parents. And it almost prevents them from falling in love, which means he would have never existed, right? So he had to spend the rest of the movie trying to unravel the mess he had created by introducing just a small little change in their story. It's what Ian Malcolm, the scientist in Jurassic Park, calls the butterfly effect, right? He explains it as the phenomenon whereby even the smallest change of circumstance can cause a tremendous change in outcome. And then he uses the example of how when a butterfly flaps its wings in Beijing, it can ultimately cascade to change the the weather in Central Park from sunshine to rain. Now, we probably can't get our heads around the chaos theory as he explains it, but what we can understand is the reality of how even small changes can introduce a tremendous impact in someone's life. And that difference, that change, can either be a life-changing positive or it can be a devastating negative. In our passage this morning, we're going to see how just the smallest compromise within a small group of people had a ripple effect that negatively impacted an entire nation of people. Last week, we witnessed together the the culminating event in the life of Nehemiah. You'll remember it was a a worship of epic proportions as they marched around the wall and came into the temple. It had to be just an incredible scene. And and if, if I were writing the story at the end of chapter 12, I would have said, the end, and they lived happily ever after. I mean, that's what I would have done because it was a great way to end the account of Nehemiah. But there's still another chapter left. And we will see that it reveals the frailty of man. Because one of the most important evidences, in my mind, of the Scripture's authenticity is its unwillingness to hide its flaws. Because no matter how good God is, man still finds a way to to mess things up. And it usually begins with just a small compromise, something underneath the surface that compounds over time to be amazingly devastating. That's what we'll see happen in our passage this morning. 
It's a subtle shift that turns their sincere worship into religious obligation, their complete surrender into selective obedience, and their commitment to holiness to moral impurity. It's an important chapter because it highlights what we are equally susceptible to if we fall into the traps of compromise that surround us. So we need to listen carefully because this is our story. Let's go to the Lord in prayer together. Father, as we come to you, we, on one hand, just want to thank you for um, the Scripture that doesn't hide its flaws. It's not a fairy tale. It is, doesn't have a, a happy ending in some of these cases where they live happily ever after, but there is a reality of man's sin that is ugly, that, that is devastating, but ultimately is, is dealt with by the person and work of Jesus Christ. I pray that as we look at the account of this passage this morning, that we see through this the redemptive hope that is found in Christ alone. Guide our thoughts. Guide our mind. Guide our understanding to lead us to the cross, the place of salvation. We pray this in your name. Amen. All right, turn to Nehemiah chapter 13. We're going to wrap up our study of Nehemiah for the spring today as we finish up the last chapter. If you will, begin reading with me in uh, verse 1. It says, On that day they read aloud from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. And there was found written in it, No Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. But they did not meet the son, because they did not meet the sons of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. However, our God turned the curse into a blessing. So it came about that when they heard the law, they excluded all foreigners from Israel. Now, these first three verses are important because they, they set the foundation for everything that's going to follow. It establishes a rule of life that has unified this people of God who have been set apart to carry out God's redemptive work on earth. And part of that rule of life was a commitment to avoid compromise, especially when it came to their worship. And so, when they, it says in that, in that verse 1, when they enter the assembly of God, when they gather together for worship, there were to be no foreigners among them who stood apart from the nation of Israel and did not worship the one true God exclusively. The Ammonites and the Moabites were given as some historical figures. And then verse 2 goes on to talk about how Balaam, who was actually hired by the king of Moab to curse Israel, was interrupted by God, prevented from doing so. And although God did prevent the curse from happening, you may remember what Balaam did do. He went to the king of Moab and he says, actually, you don't need me to curse Israel. They can become a curse to themselves. All you have to do is entice them into marriage with foreign women that will then entice them towards foreign gods. And once they bring that into their worship so that they're worshiping not just the one true God but all that exists, then that will become God's judgment on their life. And I don't have to curse them at all. The king does what Balaam suggested and it happened just as he said it would. And so one of the attributes of Nehemiah's reform was calling the people back to the testimony of Scripture. These first few verses reflect a public reading. It says it's before the people. 
And they were reading from the, the Law of Moses, the Old Testament. And, and they were given instruction of how to protect the integrity of their worship by avoiding this decision of compromise. Which is why they were to exclude all the foreigners from the assembly, the gathering together for worship, who did not exclusively worship the one true God with all their heart, with all their mind, with all their strength, just as the Scripture had communicated. This was a commitment and the basis of what happens next. So look at verse 4. Now, prior to this, Eliashib, the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, being related to Tobiah, had prepared a large room for him where formerly they put the grain offerings, the frankincense, the utensils, and the tithes of grain, wine and oil prescribed for the Levites, the singers, and the gatekeepers. Remember those three. And the contributions for the priests. For during uh, all this time I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had gone to the king. After some time, however, I asked leave from the king. And I came to Jerusalem and learned about the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah by preparing a room for him in the courts of the house of God. And it was very displeasing to me. So I threw out all of Tobiah's household goods out of the room. Then I gave an order and they cleansed the rooms and I returned there the utensils of the house of God with the grain offerings and the frankincense. If we do the math, we can see that Nehemiah has been in that original visit in Jerusalem for about 12 years. You may remember when he first asked the king for permission to come to Jerusalem, he told him a specific time that he would be gone. So apparently that time had arrived at 12 years, and so he returned to fulfill his duties in the palace. And then sometime after that, and we really don't know how long that was, but he requested from the king again to make a return trip to Jerusalem, and that's the account that we have in this passage. When he arrives, he finds that one of the rooms, the, the priest had cleared out one of the rooms that was dedicated in the temple for, for the offerings of those three, those three uh, groups, the Levites, the singers, and the gatekeepers. And he, he set it aside for Tobiah. Anybody remember the name Tobiah? Let me remind you. Turn to Nehemiah chapter 2. Nehemiah chapter 2. Look at verse 10. This is when Nehemiah first enters into Jerusalem. And it says in verse 10, And when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about it, they were, it was very displeasing to them that someone had come to seek the welfare of the sons of Israel. That tells you what they think about Israel. It's not a high, they're not holding them in high esteem, are they? Now look over at verse 19. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official and Geshem the Arab said, heard it, they mocked us and despised us and said, what is this thing you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? And we know from our study of Nehemiah, Tobiah was one of the key players, one of the main opponents to Israel. He despised them. He mocked them. He didn't believe in their God or anything that they were about. Tobiah was one of Israel's most ruthless opponents. And yet, now he's been given the special privilege of a private residence in the house of God, the temple dedicated for worship. So if you're reading this like me, you're probably asking, how in the world did this happen? I mean, what, what, what was this guy thinking, right? 
Well, one of the clues is in verse 4 where it says um, that he was related to Tobiah. The only way that can happen is through marriage. So there's something going on there. But I think there's another reason that may be just as big or bigger. And I think it's an issue of fear. You see, you may remember when Nehemiah was around, he came with the authority of the king. He had a decree with him that gave him the authority to carry out everything he said he was going to do. Not only that, you may remember when he marched in the town, he had the king's army with him. So not even Tobiah is going to stand up against that, right? But now Nehemiah left, and very likely his army with him. So the Israelites probably felt pretty vulnerable, don't you think? In fact, Nehemiah's absence would be a test of their faith. And the actions of this priest reveal where he has put his trust. He took matters into his own hands. He formed an alliance with Tobiah. He gave him a a special residence in the temple. He had determined that friendship with the world brought greater security than dependence upon God. That's the heart of his decision. But really, let's just be honest, it was just a small compromise, right? I mean, it's a small little storeroom in this really big temple, so what's the big deal? Is it really that important? Well, apparently, because Nehemiah, when he finds out about this, is quick and decisive. What does it tell us? He goes into the room, he takes all of Tobiah's personal belongings, and he throws them in the street, and he says, no, you will not. Not in the house of God. Nehemiah understands the ripple effect of compromise. And the holiness of God is not something you ever, ever negotiate. Because when you minimize the holiness of God, you take away the heart of worship. You see, a divided alliance always destroys the heart of devotion. What did Jesus say? You can't serve two masters. You will either love the one and despise the other. Or you will desire the one and hate the other. That's what he says. A divided alliance always destroys a heart of devotion. And that's what we begin to see happen. Look at verse 10. It says, I also discovered that the petitions of the Levites had, been give, had not been given to them. So the Levites and the singers, that's two of the three, were, were, who performed the, the service had gone away each to his own field. So I reprimanded the officials and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? Then I gathered them together and restored them to all their posts. All Judah then brought the tithe of grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. And in charge of the storehouses, I appointed Shalimah, the priest, Zadok, the scribe, Padiah uh, of the Levites. And in addition to them, there was Hanan, the, the son of Zakur the son of Matina, for they were considered reliable. And it was their task to distribute to their kinsmen. Remember me for this, O my God, and do not blot out my loyal deeds which I have performed for the house of my God and its services. The things I understand about what's hap- happening here is that now that, that small little compromise of that little bitty room inside of this big old temple has now spread to impact the entire city of Jerusalem. You'll remember that the storeroom that was used was for the Levites, for the singers, and for the gatekeepers. 
And so if that room is no longer available, then it must mean that those offerings are no longer important. Which verse 10 explains is the reason why the Levites and the singers, who were the ones supported by these contributions, had to go out and find another source of income, which is exactly what they did. It says that they each went to their own field instead of continuing their work of ministry in the temple. Are you kind of beginning to see the ripple effect of compromise? It's just a small little storeroom. But it has now altered the worship of the entire nation of Israel. Because I want you to understand, as I've thought through this and considered this passage, as best I can tell, the worship of the temple didn't just shut down altogether. Okay? There were still things going on, in particular the, the offerings and the sacrifices. You see, the Levites and the singers were like those who were supported. They're kind of like um, support services in the temple. Maybe much like we would consider volunteers who serve in our children's ministry here at church. These were side ministries, and they were minimized as the main worship service, the burnt offerings and the sacrifices, continued to take place. And I think this is incredibly revealing. Because if you think about it, who's the primary beneficiary of those main worship services of sacrifices and offerings? Who benefits most? It's the one making the offering, right? When I go to the temple and make an offering or a sacrifice for sin, it's for what? My sin. Or the sin of my family. And so what the... What this means is that the people continued in the main worship service where they received the direct benefit, but they decided to forego the offerings that would benefit those who were behind the scenes. So I want you to think about this. If they are not willing to support those things that are going behind the scenes, but only willing to support those things where they get the personal benefit, who are they really worshiping? Really, who are they really worshiping? You see, their compromise has turned their heartfelt devotion into a religious obligation. It is a selfish attitude of entitlement that shifts the focus of my worship to me. I'm the sinner. I'm the beneficiary. It dilutes my devotion to carry out those sacrifices where I receive something in return. It's what I call vending machine theology, right? I'm willing to give to God only when I know that I'm going to receive something in return. And that ripple effect of compromise doesn't just end there. Turn to verse 15. It says, In those days I saw Judah, in Judah some were trading wine presses on the Sabbath. And, and bringing in sacks of grain and loading them on donkeys as well as wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads. And they brought them into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. So I admonished them on the day they sold food. I, also, men of Tyre were living there who imported fish and all kinds of merchandise and sold them to the sons of Judah on the Sabbath, even in Jerusalem. Then I reprimanded the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing you are doing by profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers do the same so that our God brought on us and on this city all this trouble? 
you are adding to the wrath of Israel by profaning the Sabbath. And it came about that just as it grew dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and that they should not open until until after the Sabbath. Then I stationed some of the servants at the gates that no load should enter on the Sabbath day. Once or twice the traders and merchants of every kind of merchandise spent the night outside Jerusalem. Then I warned them and said to them, Why do you spend the night in front of the wall? If you do so again, I will use force against you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. And I commanded the Levites, and they should purify themselves and come as gatekeepers to sanctify the Sabbath day. For this also remember me, O my God, and have compassion on me according to the greatness of thy loving kindness. If you'll look back at verse 5 again, you'll remember those three groups that were impacted, the Levites, the singers, and the gatekeepers. We just talked about the impact of the, the Levites and the singers and how it altered their worship. And now we see the results of the gatekeepers when they're not doing their job. See, to be a gatekeeper, it functions much like the name implies. They were the ones who stood at the gate and determined who, who could come in and at what times. They were keeping the gate. They were probably in some part fulfilling some type of a, a security role, but we see in this passage how it really impacted the worship of the people as well. Because when Nehemiah returns, he finds that the Sabbath has become just another day. It's literally business as usual. People are making wine and carrying grain into Jerusalem. It says that they were buying and selling goods. The Sabbath looked like any other day, and apparently not in Jerusalem. It describes it as something that is occurring all throughout Judah. The ripple effect is extending farther and farther out. It was just a small little storeroom. Because remember, these were the people who back in chapter 10 made a covenant before God, explicitly promising not to do business on the Sabbath. you remember that? I mean, it was a big deal. All the people together, they wrote names on a, on a covenant that they then declared before all the people, and they said, we will commit to this. We will not do business on the Sabbath. But compromise has caused their complete surrender to turn into selective obedience they kept their promise when it was convenient they were committed to the seventh unless something better came along and here's why that's a problem they wrongly assumed that the sabbath was all about them which is why they gave themselves permission to opt out if they felt like they were doing pretty good on their own But the Sabbath was ordained by God as a distinctive characteristic of His people. And it really had less to do with the people and more about the testimony of their God. It was a public proclamation that said, Our God is sovereign. And we trust in Him to provide for all of our needs. And it really was a step of faith. Because while all the nations around them were carrying out business as usual, as if their life depended upon it, God said, I want you to set apart this day for my sake so that you communicate to the world that your life depends on me. 
This is His day. Not a day that I can choose what I want to do. And the gatekeepers were the ones who protected the sanctity of the Sabbath. By, by literally closing the doors for business on that day. Because when the Sabbath is no longer sacred, the testimony of God's people now sends a different message. And I want you to think about this. Instead of exalting God above everything, he's slipped into a list of other equally important priorities. Do you see what their compromise is communicating? When the Sabbath is no big deal, then neither is the God that you're called to worship. Oh, but, but I worship all during the week. Good for you. You should do that. But God didn't instruct His people to try to fit Him in to their routine. He set aside a day, I believe, in part, purposefully inconvenient. So we adjust our routine for Him. You see the difference? That's why Nehemiah steps in and says, no more. No more. He restores the role of the gatekeepers and instructs them to close the city gates for the duration of the Sabbath, which was more than just one day. Well, you see in the passage what happens is the merchants who've traveled in say, that's fine, we'll just sit outside the city gates. We'll open up business outside the city gates and it's not a big deal. Nehemiah says, I'll tell you what, I'm going to send an army who will escort you home unless you don't want to go there yourself. That's what it says. And it says that the people didn't do it anymore. (laughs) It was a message strong enough that they said, all right, got it, we won't be around on the Sabbath. And they didn't show up on the Sabbath anymore after that day. But even after all this, Nehemiah finds that that consequence of compromise has still not run its course. This small little storeroom is about to become the demise of an entire nation of people. Look at what happens in verse 23. It says, In those days I also saw that the Jews had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. As for their children, half spoke in the language of Ashdod, and none of them was able to speak in the language of Judah, but the language of his own people. So I contended with them and cursed them and struck struck some of them and pulled out their hair made them swear by God, you shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin regarding these things? Yet among the many nations there was no king like him. He was loved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, the foreign women caused him to sin. Do we then hear about you that you have committed all this great evil by acting unfaithfully against our God, by marrying foreign women, even one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was a son-in-law of Sanballat the Horonite. So I drove him away from me. Remember them, O my God, because they have defiled the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus I purified them from everything, foreign and appointed duties for and appointed duties for the priests and the Levites, each to his task. And I arranged for the supply of wood at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O oh my God, for good. 
their compromise has turned their sincere worship into religious obligation. Their complete surrender into selective obedience. And now we see how their commitment to holiness has evolved into moral liberties. This is the prophecy of Balaam all over again. Remember, you don't have to curse the people of Israel. They will come curse to themselves. Just entice them away from worship. Distract them from their devotion to the one true God. Nehemiah then brings in the example of Solomon. And he does this by virtue of a hyperbole. Okay? He's saying, look, we all know who Solomon is. He was the wisest man who ever lived. And yet, he was drawn away to pagan worship. That was his sin. Because of the influence of the nations around him that he entered into alliances with through marriage. Now, it's important to understand that Nehemiah is not promoting racial exclusivism. I want you to hear me on this because this can be easily misunderstood. There's more going on here than marrying foreign women. And this passage isn't demeaning women because really they're not the problem. They're being used by godless men to carry out an evil purpose. And let me explain. Look again at verse 24. The fact that the children are no longer speaking the language of Judah suggests that Israel is beginning to lose its identity as a people. Because language, right, is one of the most important qualities of a culture. You know when you're in a foreign land when the people around you are not speaking the same language as you are. Well, the Israelites are a Hebrew-speaking people. And if so, then, then, then Hebrew is apparently not their native tongue any longer. And if that's the case, then some other culture has become the dominant influence among the people of God. And this is not an accident. Look at verse 28. Even one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest was a son-in-law of Sanballat the Horonite, so I drove him away from me. Now that one single verse is hugely significant. In this verse, Nehemiah describes the marriage between the grandson of the high priest and the daughter of Sanballat. Now, we saw Sanballat show up in the verses that we read. And the way I would describe it to you is this. If Tobiah was a gang member then Sanballat was the drug lord. This was the king. In fact, in the time of Nehemiah, according to everything we have on record, there was no one man who hated Israel more than Sanballat. No one man who despised them more than Sanballat. And so do you think that since he's now allowed his daughter to enter into this marriage with the grandson of the high priest that he's just had a change of heart? Is that what happened? Absolutely not. All of this is just a more subtle attempt to accomplish his original goal. He is using his very own daughter to align himself with the high priest lineage, which un undoubtedly is the most influential role within the community of the Jews, the high priest. 
Sanballat is building an alliance of power. All he's doing is leveraging the compromise of Israel to his own advantage. Because as this trend of intermarriage continues, his culture will become the dominant influence. And when that happens, he can then exert his position of political control. Up to this point, I've kind of been calling this the ripple effect of compromise. And I, I think that's true in the extent that, that it really describes visually for us to see how something so small sends out this cascading impact that extends farther and farther out until literally a nation's identity is at stake. But I think it has its limitations too because if you think about that ripple effect, what happens to the ripple is the farther it gets out. It gets smaller and smaller, doesn't it, in magnitude over time. And that's not what's happening here. This is more like the effect of a tsunami. Something that kind of started underneath the surface that was unforeseen, then builds and cascades over time, so that by the time it reaches shore, it will annihilate an entire population of people. That's what's happening in this passage. And that's why Nehemiah's reaction is so decisive. He has to confront the compromise in order to restore the integrity of worship, which is at the center of all God's people for all time. And so he puts everything back in place, and that's the good news of how this ends, is he restores what takes place that, as it should be. I said in the beginning that this is an important chapter because of our tendency to fall into the very same traps as they did. We are just as susceptible to turning our sincere worship into religious obligation, aren't we? Honestly, we do that. We change our complete surrender into selective obedience. We replace our commitment to holiness with moral liberties. The fact of the matter is, we are no better at keeping our commitments than they were. Because there's no religious system. There's no rule of life. There's really no strength of discipline that will ever overcome your tendency towards sin. We just got to understand that up front. There's nothing that we can do to overcome our tendency towards sin. We simply do not have the power to remain true to God. Only God has the power to to remain true to you. And that's our only hope. As I thought about this week um, in this passage and what's being communicated here, I was challenged personally in a lot of ways. But one of the ways I was challenged was the use of a phrase that is common within the church, and, and, and I've used it a lot too, when we encourage people to commit their life to Jesus, right? I encourage you to commit your life to Christ. It's something that I've often said, but as I've thought through this passage... <laughs> I'm beginning to wonder if that's really a fair statement to make. Because it implies that, that my personal commitment, my personal resolve can somehow change the course of my life. That my self-discipline is what will have an influence on my heart. But isn't that the problem? We don't keep our commitments any better than, than they did. We're not promise keepers. We're promise breakers. That's the reality of who we are in our sin nature. 
fact, I'm pretty sure it's probably not a good statement to make to encourage people to, to commit their life to Christ. Because what we really need is Jesus Christ to change my life in ways that I can never possibly do on my own. As I thought about it, I think that's why the, the statement is not found in Scripture. It's not. In fact, if you think about what is in Scripture, think about what Jesus said. He said, if you want to save your life, what must you do? Make a stronger commitment? Is that what I heard? No. It's not what he says. He says, if you want to save your life, then you've got to lose it. The heart of salvation is a decision of surrender, not a decision of commitment. Because we break our commitments. I love the words of Diedrich Bonhoeffer. He's a hero. He says, when Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. When Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. That's what Christ is communicating. If you want to save your life, I bid you to come and die. That's why Paul writes to the Galatians saying the very same thing. He says, for I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life that I now live in this flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. You are faithful to follow God only through faith in Jesus Christ. It's a decision of surrender where you're no longer in control. See, that's the good news of the gospel. And I want you to hear this part because it's really important to understand that the gospel declares that, that God doesn't even just change our heart. God gives us a new heart. He takes our heart of stone, which is a promise breaker, and He makes us into a people who are faithful because we trust in Him to do in us what we cannot do in ourselves. And we see our desires change. We, we see our hope change. So that what we're living for is not what exists in this world, but something beyond that. See, you and I have been made alive together with Christ. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And that, not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. Not as a result of works, not as a result of commitments, lest any man should boast. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And if that's true in your life, then what you're going to see is your religious obligations will turn into heartfelt worship. You will see your selective obedience turn into complete surrender. You will see your moral liberties turn into a life of holiness. So I want you to take some time this week and think about that in your life. Think about the, the reason that chapter 13 exists. Is It's a reminder that you can't do this based on your personal commitment to live for Jesus. You've got to surrender your life to Jesus so He can change your heart in ways that you can never accomplish on your own. So are you a person of commitment or are you a person of surrender? And what does your life say in your act of worship, your heart of devotion, your heart of surrender? I think that's the message that we need to hear loud and clear through Nehemiah as we wrap things up this morning. 
So let me pray for us, and as I do, I'm going to ask the graduating seniors to come forward. Bruce, if you want to come forward as well, and we're going to take some time before we dismiss to, to pray for them. So let me go to the Lord together. God, as we come before you this morning, we want to thank you for chapter 13 because it would have left us with the false understanding, if ending in verse 12, that we can accomplish a life of holiness by the strength of our commitment and how untrue that is because we are promise breakers. But thank you, Jesus, for knowing the heart of humanity and providing a solution to our inadequacies. Thank you for your death on the cross that accomplished for us what we could not, have apost- could not have possibly done on our own. And thank you for reminding us, even in our passage this morning, that, that our life of following you faithfully is not based on the strength of our commitment, but a heart of surrender. So that we know and believe that, that you are the one who works inside of us in a redemptive way, changing our heart, giving us a new heart with new desires, a hope that is eternal, a life that is lived not just for our sake, but ultimately for your glory. And that changes everything we do. You become no longer a priority that's fit in our list of other equally important priorities. You are exalted above all things. Our Sabbath, our time of worship, is not just something that we do when it's convenient. But we do when it's inconvenient because we want to adjust our life to you, not make you adjust to us. And when we see these opportunities to serve behind the scenes, forgive us, Father, for the times where we've considered those things unimportant. And we've been faithful to the main worship because we get something out of it. May we return to the true heart of worship that does things not for something we get in return, but for something we give out of sacrifice to the only one who deserves the blessing, and that's you. Father, thank you for the message of hope that you've done something about our hearts. Thank you for the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen.